hormone harmony is not just a supplement for women going through perimenopause, menopause, or postmenopause. It's become a phenomenon. Women cannot stop talking about it on social media. A bottle of hormone harmony is sold every 24 seconds. Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. That means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality, and it shows. Hormone Harmony contains science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now, here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life. So, Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any women with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it, but it's perfect for those with those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. Hot flashes and night sweats, racing thoughts and low moods, poor sleep and feeling tired all the time, occasional bloating and gas, no desire to be in bed next to someone if you know what I mean. Yeah, Hormone Harmony can help with all of these things. And the biggest benefit feeling like myself again. And that's what women mention over and over in the reviews. There are over 17,000 reviews for Hormone Harmony. For a limited time, you can get 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use our code, which is the acronym of the podcast, T-S-N-O-T-Y-A-W at checkout. That's the podcast acronym at checkout at happymammoth.com calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Hi there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi everyone, welcome back to another Books with Hooks. It's an exciting one today because we have the author joining us and we always get overly excited and overly zealous when the author is here. We're like a bunch of golden retriever puppies drooling all over the author, so we're looking forward to that. Before we kick off, Carly? Hello everybody, this is a reminder that this is an unscripted program and our conversations have been edited and condensed and it's not a full picture of our feedback or conversation directly with each author. As always, refer to our written notes for the fulsome picture. Thank you, Carly. Right now, I'm really excited to welcome our author, Erica. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, thank you for putting yourself out there and for being brave enough to join us on the show. As always, it's our intention to make your submission as polished as it can possibly be so that it'll help you land that dream agent. So can we ask you to please kick us off by reading the query letter? Of course. Dear Cece, thank you so much for all the work you, Carly, and Bianca put into your incredible podcast. Your experience and wisdom have been a valuable component of my writing education. You are the best. Because you are interested in morally ambiguous and unlikable protagonists, I think you will enjoy my 84,000-word women's fiction novel, 
the last mistake. It is a story of balance in life's middle years, passion and habit, romance and friendship, the transcendent yet utterly corporeal love of early motherhood. The tone and themes will resonate with readers of Taffy Broaddus or Ackner's Fleischman is in Trouble and Camille Pagan's I'm Fine and Neither Are You. It's February 2019, and Claire has built the perfect New York City life. She has a job she likes, good friends, and a stable marriage. But she has put aside her passion for music, as well as the long-ago love, Mark, whose artistic dreams conflicted with her plans. And now, even her compromises are beginning to fail as the small disappointments of marriage pile up with the larger disappointment of infertility. When Claire's younger brother announces his impending fatherhood, and that Mark will attend his upcoming wedding, Claire's dissatisfaction is further inflamed. She and Mark begin an affair endangering her perfect life but providing a refuge from marital conflict and the stresses of fertility treatment and eventually pregnancy. Even after her husband learns of her betrayal, leading to a temporary separation and then a recommitment to the marriage, Claire is drawn to the romance and idealism Mark represents. But Mark is the past, and Claire's baby is the future, and eventually she must choose. In March 2020, as COVID spreads through the city, she finds herself nine months pregnant and quarantined alone. Her husband is semi-estranged and stranded overseas, and her youthful dreams and adult plans are equally out of reach and equally irrelevant to the prospect of birthing, raising, and loving her baby. I live in New York City with my husband and two children, including a pandemic baby. My self-published Kindle novels, The Library Cave and That Kind of Girl, are available on Amazon. I am a member of WFWA. Attached to the first five pages of The Last Mistake, later chapters of which include discussion of Claire's prior abortion. May I send you the full manuscript? Sincerely, me. Wonderful, Erica. Thank you so much for that. For our listeners, that clocks in at 389 words, and that includes the 34 words that Erica used at the beginning to really personalize it for the podcast. Right, Carly, will you kick us off with your thoughts? Absolutely. So Erica, as I said before we went live, I love having authors on the show. It's just so fun to be able to kind of pick your brain in person-ish and just kind of make sure that we are just doing our best service as an educational platform to help you elevate. So one of the things that stood out to me is with women's fiction, when there's an emotional journey of the main character, we tend to focus a lot on the main character's journey, obviously, right? Because that is like the tenets of women's fiction. And, you know, if we're trying to figure out like what the struggles are, obviously it's in a very internal struggle. So I'm trying to figure out what are the external factors here that kind of make this more plot driven? I want to get at the more plot driven side of it because I think that's what's really going to shine in the query letter. Because a lot of novels that might be a little bit more literary or might be more internal on the page, they're going to be that way. But in a query letter, we're trying to elevate like the what happens in the book. And so I think one of the things that I struggled a little bit with is this idea of like the status quo. You start with after the title, it's a story of balance. A story of balance makes it seem like the character has already achieved balance. And so that what is destabilizing about this character in this point of their life? That's what I want to figure out. I always say that a novel should start at the most interesting point in a character's life. So if you're saying this is a story of balance, that has she already achieved balance? Then why are we reading a story about her? Or why, why are we focusing on the story starting here? That's one of the things that I'm thinking about. And then I love the comps, obviously, like Love Fleshman. I think that's an incredible book. And then we get into it's February 2019. Claire has built the perfect life in New York City. So period. And then you go job she likes, good friends, stable marriage. So we're already like three paragraphs into this query letter. We haven't encountered any element of instability other than the comps, right? And we know that there's some tumultuousness to come, but that's all in theme. That is not in plot that you're telling us that. So then we get to long ago love Marx. You mentioned Mark, Mark's name. 
the ex before you mention the husband's name. So we get the sense, obviously, we know as things to come that, you know, there's this kind of like unraveling of her, her marriage. We know that Mark is a very important character. So to me, this isn't a novel about marriage. This is a novel about an affair. Again, to me, I'm the outsider here. I'm just perceiving this based on what I've read. You know your manuscript best. So I'm kind of wondering, like, why are we focusing on all the balance, all the status quo, (laughs) stable marriage? Again, we're at the end of that first body paragraph when you get into the small disappointments of marriage pile up with the larger disappointment of infertility. I'm like, boom, right? Like, that's where we're starting to get to the instability. But like, that's essentially at the end of the third paragraph. So I felt like that was a lot of backstory and a lot of filler because I don't actually know what about that is happening in the book versus what are you telling me about where the book actually began. So then you start when Claire's younger brother announces his impending fatherhood and Mark will attend the upcoming wedding. To me, that's the beginning of the pitch, right? Because it's like all of that's backstory. Again, we can build that in however we need to to get at the kind of elevated plot points. But to me, the book begins when her younger brother announces impending fatherhood. And then you can do a little like, you know, while she's struggling with her own experience of infertility, boom, her ex she never got over is also attending the upcoming wedding. You know, you you build that in. The foundation is the trouble. And then you're like building in the elements of her emotional journey. I hope that's making sense. Because that's what I think, to me, it's a novel of affair. It's, again, based on what I'm reading. Yeah, I don't know. I I really just want to like use the plot as scaffolding. And then we're like, and then we're building in the emotional layers because I think that's really what's going to help this take off and just seem more elevated than other women's fiction novels because nothing wrong with women's fiction novels, but you are querying, you're trying to be the best women's fiction novel that any agent is reading that month. And that's my goal for you. And that's what I really want you to focus on. And ultimately, I also don't think this whole, like, she's built the perfect life is true because she doesn't think she's built the perfect life. She doesn't have a marriage that's working. And so I almost feel like you're not being truthful with the reader because you're like, "Mm, she's built this beautiful life. And it's like, well, well, how is she? That doesn't seem like a beautiful life to me, especially when we get to the opening pages and we know right away that marriage is not executing the way that she wants a marriage to, you know, exist as. Yeah, so those are kind of my main query notes and obviously I'll, I'll turn that over for other bits of feedback and then we can obviously get into the pages thank you Carly I really like that feedback because to me the affair is much more interesting than a story of a marriage and certainly all the ways in which she's unhappy and her life is imperfect is always going to be much more interesting to me than all the ways that it is perfect so I think if Erica can capture that in the query I think it's really going to tighten it up Cece what do you think I really like the way the way you framed it Carly about a story of an affair To me, it's possibly one of the most interesting ways in which the bad side, let's just call it that, of human nature comes up in in society, in our our society. And I'm always baffled by how so many people have a problem with cheating. Like, oh, I don't like this character because they cheated and I'm not going to read about a protagonist who cheats. And I'm like, you'll read about murder. That's okay. But then you have a problem with cheating? Like, please explain that to me. Having a problem with cheating in real life, I absolutely understand. But like, it's a book, right? Like you get to see the messy side of human nature. And I think that it's it's really interesting. And it's definitely the kind of story that I'm drawn to. I just want to echo that I think you need to delete that line that reads, it is a story of balance in life's middle years. Keep it for when you're talking to your agent and keep it for interviews because you should know your book's themes. It's very valuable to know. It doesn't belong in the query letter. And then since we talked about the inciting incident and the setup, I'd like to talk about the climax. Right now, the climax seems to be very placid, like a lake, like a beautiful, beautiful lake. She's nine months pregnant and she, you know her husband's on the other side of the world. I have no idea what, where Mark is because I assume they ended their affair. And she has her youthful dreams and adult plans out of reach. 
you know? And so that feels very passive and I don't want that. I want the climax to feel juicy and I want to be respectful of your book and not make it into something it's not. And I definitely don't want to be fetishistic, but you have such potential here with the setup because stories of affair, like there's a love triangle element, there's temptation, there's desire, there's resistance. All these things lead to a really juicy story. So when I read, even after her husband learns of her betrayal, leading to a temporary separation and then a recommitment to the marriage, I highlighted that and I said, when does this happen in the book? Is it early on? That's a question I have for you. Or is it like midway? Like when exactly in the book does that happen? Because I'm worried it's a spoiler. And if it happens early and therefore is not a spoiler, then for the last paragraph, for the climax, can we tweak that? And maybe you can tell us what happens if you don't mind and up till the climax and we can like figure out a way to really respect what this book is, respect the interiority, respect the meditation element of it because you did comp a book that's also meditation, which is Fleischman is in trouble, but leveraging the plot points. And then as a final note, I'll actually use one of your comps, Fleischman, to kind of like illustrate what I'm saying. That book is incredibly internal. I love it. It's one of my favorite novels ever. Love, love, love it. It's so internal. It's actually pitched as a meditation. So it's very honest about what it is. But you have Rachel's disappearance. And that is what gives it the plot that it needs. And so because he can't find Rachel, and in order to find her, he needs to confront his own role in their marriage, the role he's been ignoring and lying to himself about, that gives the book enough plot so that it's not just an internal story. And I'm pretty sure there's probably a disappearance of your own in your own book, not literally a disappearance. And maybe you can tell us what it is so we can figure out how to really make sure that the major dramatic question is leveraging the curiosity. Essentially, I want to make it story forward, if that makes sense. Thanks, Cece. Yeah, I think there's a propulsiveness there that you're alluding to that we can definitely now explore with Erica. Okay, Erica, now's your time to ask questions or answer them so that we can help you brainstorm. Okay, thank you guys so much for this feedback. It totally makes sense now what you're saying. I don't know why I didn't manage to see it before, but you're, you're right about the balance being too themey and boring. And I think what I've done is because my plot feels too complicated to me, I've sort of tried to extract out the most general aspects of it, which are the themes. The part about Paul finding out about the affair is not a spoiler. It happens about a third of the way through. Essentially, it is a very internal meditative story. Claire spends the first part of the book frustrated that her perfect life isn't so perfect and she's wishing she were pregnant and she's wishing she had a passionate relationship and then about a third of the way in she gets pregnant and she gets this passionate relationship and of course it doesn't fix anything she just has a whole new set of even worse problems because being pregnant is not fun and having an affair is, is full of guilt and conflict and confusion and then things keep getting more complicated and in terms of the climax, unfortunately, I don't know if this is a problem with my story or if this is a genre thing, because different readers have told me that I should be calling my book literary or upmarket, or I don't know what it is. And I've struggled with that. And so I've just not given it a qualifier. But the climax is really that she's she's ended the affair, but also she and Paul are sort of estranged. So it is kind of, it is a plastic climax because she is alone. She's quarantined all by herself in this massive body with this baby. And she, I mean, there's, she's not alone for, you know, pages and pages in the book, obviously people, there are people she interacts with. She interacts with Mark. She has friends. She gives birth, which is pretty unplacid, but the climax is, is very interior because the climax of the novel and it's, she has to make a decision and lots of things happen. You know, Paul is in Australia and he has to come home and they have a fight and she has conversations with Mark and they have, you know, 
dramatic moments and a separation and this and that. And she has conversations with friends and there's, I've of course left out all the subplots and, you know, her two best friends, each of whom her relationships with them evolve really significantly over the course of the book. But I didn't put that in the query letter. So I had to leave out like some of the most dramatic points of the climactic sequence were involving her friends. So I don't really know how to, you know, I could say the climax is about, you know, she has to choose a man, except in the, in the book, it's not actually that simple because it's not about choosing a man, really. It's about choosing a life. I could say she has to fight with her best friend over who's going to get the guy, which is, of course, a dramatic oversimplification. Like, I'm, I'm really struggling to find like the one angle because there's many different events that are all going into this climax that is really in her. And I don't know how to, in a query letter, make one event. I guess I just have to pick one and make it the most important. Erica, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump in there. Yeah, I mean, I think the major issue here is that you don't actually have like a written hook and a written log line, right? Because what Cece and I are saying is that line has to go, right? The one that you have about story of balance, life's middle years, passion and habit, romance and friendships, right? All of that is kind of where like a log line or the hook should be. So the fact that you can't figure out in words, I mean, again, maybe you have this elsewhere, but like that fact you don't have this here in the actual query letter, to me, makes the query letter really hard because you, you haven't set yourself up with like, oh, here's my hook, this happens and this happens and then this keeps them apart, so this, this. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So if like if you had a formula, if you had a hook up there, all you have to do is build your query letter out to expand upon and answer some of those elements of the hook. You know what I'm trying to say? So, you know, I'll give you a couple, you know, a couple really quick formulas, right? So we have character plus goal plus obstacle, right? Like that's an example or character plus situation plus complication. Do you know what I'm trying to say? You just find these log line formulas, find these hook formulas, figure out one that speaks to you. And then I think it'll make your query letter a lot easier because I think that's one of the things that you're struggling with here is that you don't, you don't have a hook to build off of. And I think you're trying to like reverse engineer a hook when really it's like, I think if you just figured out how to summarize that more easily in fewer words, you would have a little like query formula. Does that make sense? Yeah. If I had a, a hook that made sense with my story, then it would tell me what the end has to be. Yeah, that makes sense. Just jumping in yeah, Cece, you seem to have a light bulb moment earlier. Was there something you wanted to add? There is. First, I have a question. Two questions. Question number one, does she know who the father of the baby is? Yes, she does genetic testing to find out. Don't know that she should know. Just saying. Like, that is juicy. I am a horrible human being, right? Like, if this weren't fiction, I would be the worst human ever. I'm just saying it's very juicy. Second question. What is with this whole friend? My, the friend also likes Mark? Like, explain that. You said something about a competition with the friend and the guy. Like, what are we talking about there? So what happens in the story is she, the competition is for her husband, Paul. She is cheating on him with Mark and completely taking him for granted, um, as you do when you're married, I guess. And then the way he finds out about it is that her best friend overhears her talking to Mark about the fact that she's pregnant and that they need to figure out who the father is. And the best friend sort of puts it together that she's cheating. And she goes and she tells Paul about it. And so Claire, the main character, is like, why, why did you do this? Why did you tell my husband that I cheated on him? And then the best friend is like, you don't appreciate him. You, you know, he's so amazing. And you have this amazing husband and you cheated on him. And it turns out that the best friend has been in love with him for years. Holy shit, that needs to be in the query. What she said. What she said. <laughs> sorry, sorry. That's a great external plot point, right? Like that's something that happens to her in a very like loud, huge, plotty way. Okay. It just feels like a soap opera. 
Soap operas sell. Soap operas are you, successful. I was going to say, soapy is good because soapy means that human interactions are happening. Obviously, I, I think what you're struggling with also, if I may kind of project a little bit, is that you said you weren't sure if this is literary or this is women's fiction or what this is. The fact that you don't want this to be soapy makes me think that you're trying to kind of shoehorn this a little bit when actually like you're not letting the story speak its own voice, if that makes sense. Like, I think the story is speaking to you. And then you have to do the job of translating the story to the pitch. Do you know what I mean? Like, and those are two separate things. So yeah, I don't know if that makes sense at all. Yeah, because, you know, something I'm noticing a lot with books with hook submissions we get, and I'm seeing it as well, when we do the beta reader matchups, is how many people want to believe that their work is literary? And I don't know where this comes from. I don't know if we get told as writers that only literary work has value. And so we're like, my work is is literary or book club or whatever. Um, and often when I read the submission, it is definitely not literary. It is definitely not book club. But that doesn't mean it isn't good. It's still really good. It's just the writer is trying to pigeonhole their book as something that it isn't. And I think what Carly just said is let the story be what it's going to be because these things aren't unresolved at the end, Erica. A lot of the time with literary fiction, we have an unresolved ending. The reader actually doesn't know what the character has chosen, etc. So it sounds like she does choose. She does choose what she wants for her own life. It isn't this big unresolved thing. And there's a lot happening here, even though it is a meditation. So I don't think that it is literary yeah what Carly said let it be what it wants to be so then that brings me back to the question about genre because I, I don't think it's literary either and I don't think it's it's book club because there are no real big issues here uh, but I I think the issue is that when people have read it they've struggled because a lot of women's fiction gets sort of conflated into the romance novel genre and the romance novel genre if you start out in an unhappy marriage and you meet your old boyfriend again What's going to happen is you're going to get back together with him and there's going to be some drama and there's going to be some complications. And at the end of the story, you're completely romantically fulfilled, probably with the old boyfriend. And that's that's what you expect. And I, I don't want to set up that expectation because it's not what happens. So I don't want readers to go in thinking Paul's the bad guy and Mark is the solution to all the problems because then they're going to be very unhappy with the end of the story. I think you can just call it contemporary fiction, you know, okay. just like contemporary fiction. I That's how I would describe it, right? It's like, it's modern. It's not historical. It's contemporary, right? We're not saying it's literary. We're not saying it's issue driven. We're not saying it's commercial either because I, I don't think it has like certain commercial tenants. So I would just call it contemporary fiction if I was advising you. Can, okay. can I ask how much psychological elements, how much tension, how much seething resentments are you building into it? Because I think of a book like something like The Whispers by Ashley Audrain. Certainly that's a lot more psychological. Yeah, I think of a book like that. There's a lot of simmering resentment. There's seething tensions. There's a lot of psychology that goes into that. How much of that is involved in the interiority of your book, Erica? I mean, there's definitely interiority, but it, it's not seething really. It's I wouldn't call it a psychological novel, but it is the case that the I mean, there is plot, there's stuff that happens, but I think the main conflict that has to be resolved for this book to have a happy ending in some sense is inside of Claire. It's not that she needs to change partners. It's not even that she needs to have a baby. It's that she needs to come to terms with her own life and her own role in that life. 
What about the pandemic as more of a character? I mean, I hesitate to say that because, you know, I, I can't make blanket statements about how other agents and editors feel about the pandemic, but you obviously mention it in the book. And so that's a huge external factor. And when we think about universality in terms of like universal themes, we think of like love and loss and war and pandemics, like these big things that keep people apart from each other. So I'm wondering if through, you know, obviously the, I think it's like the pandemic happens and then he can't get home or something like, like I'm wondering how much of a external universal theme that fact that like he can't get to her is I, I just wonder about that not the saying that they have to be together but like as, as a tension builder yeah I mean the pandemic is definitely adding tension in the end but it's really only in the last 20% of the novel that the pandemic becomes a factor so it before that they're separated you know they're emotionally separated they're physically separated because of themselves and then because of Paul's work and then the pandemic sort of comes in as at the beginning of the climactic sequence to sort of make it impossible for him to come home and just give Claire some extra unhappiness. I'm not sure if I would say that the pandemic is really a character just because we, in the story, we don't really get to the point of the pandemic that I think many of us remember. It's still those early weeks of like total uncertainty and not knowing anything and being locked in your apartment all by yourself. Yeah, I keep coming back to the fact that I think you got to fix this hook. I honestly feel like the answer to all of your questions is just getting a really good hook logline situation figured out personally. Cece, can I ask why you didn't want Erica's character to know who the father was? Because to me, knowing who the father is at a certain point, I certainly want her to be grappling with that. If it's this one, what will I do? If it's this one's, then what will I do? But why did you not necessarily want her to, to find out? Because I'm trying to figure out a way that I'm trying to figure out a way to flesh out the major dramatic question. And right now we don't have a story forward one. So one of the things could be she's not allowed to get genetic testing um, in utero. Don't know why, because X, Y, Z, you know, we can find a medical reason for that. So she has to wait for the birth of her baby. So that could be a way to make it story forward. It doesn't have to be that, of course, because I'm very mindful of not making a novel into something it's not, but I'm trying again, figure out, I keep saying story forward because to me, that's what's missing in the climax. And you mentioned that the pandemic doesn't occur until the very end. So then I don't know that the climax is, is well positioned, right? Because we have that in the query letter, we're supposed to stop at a moment that's framed with story forward specificity. Will she choose X or Y and the stakes? And by the time she does, will he still want her? Another thing that I thought of is she could be trapped with this best friend. If that's such a central relationship and it's so juicy, maybe the only person who can help her is the best friend. So that's another relationship she needs to figure out. And maybe part of the arc is that she she will realize the common denominator in all her relationships, including her relationship with herself. And that is the internal growth that will happen and the thing that will change. Yeah, I don't know. It doesn't have to be the whole, she doesn't know who the dad is. It just, we need a question to be answered. We need something like, will it be X or Y? Will it be A or B? So bouncing off of that, so Erica, can I ask you, when it comes to causality, how important is finding out who the father is? Because if finding out who the father is is not going to change her mind, she's still going to be with Mark or she's still going to be with Paul. Why is that important? So it needs to be that if it is Mark, her plan is X, Y, and Z, which is not actually what she wants because she really wants to be with Paul. Or it needs to be that if it's Paul's, the answer is going to be A, B, and C, which is not what she wants because what she actually wants is C, D, and E. So how much does that affect the outcome of the story? I think the actual father, the, who the father is, affects the outcome somewhat because I think 
probably if the baby was Mark's, the baby turns out to be Paul's. If the baby was Mark's, I think it would make it very hard for her to stay in her marriage, which is what she wants to do. And she knows that. She knows that if, if she finds out the baby is Mark's, she's probably going to end, end up leaving her marriage. And she's hoping the baby will be Paul's at that stage. Uh, and then it is. But also the fact that she doesn't know the father and needs to figure out who the father is, is what causes her to get back in touch with Mark. Because she had not planned to have this affair. They had one moment together. And she had said, this is never going to happen again. And because she needs to find out who the father is, and she doesn't want to talk to Paul about it, she has to contact Mark again, and then they have to go to the hospital together. And so it, it pushes them back together. And there's sort of for the first, for the first third or half of the book, there's this sort of noirish element of she keeps getting sucked back into this affair that she, she's telling herself she doesn't want to be in, but she keeps getting sucked back in. Yeah, noirish elements are psychological, though. So I know you've said it isn't too psychological, but I don't know. I'm, I'm wondering about that. Erica, anything else you wanted to ask us about that before we get into the actual pages? I have a question, actually, about the number of characters in the query letter. So right now, I in the query, I mentioned the husband. I've mentioned the brother because he's sort of part of the plot. I don't even mention this friend who is trying to steal her husband, which obviously I'll have to do now. But the only characters who are named are the main character and Mark. And I did that because it felt like I was just otherwise throwing names around. But how many characters can I name in a query letter? I think you kind of got it right here. But the way that you chose to do it signaled something to me, right? Because as I said, when I when I gave my critique, which is that I noticed that you only mentioned Claire and you only mentioned Mark and you didn't name the husband, which made me feel like he was a minor character. So I think you have to only name main characters. So if the husband is a main character, I would probably name him and I wouldn't name the younger brother. I think you could potentially just keep it at that. But do we all agree that she must definitely include the friend and that storyline in the query letter? Yes and no. I, as I said, I'm like harping on this, but once you figure out your hook, once you figure out this log line, it will give you the framework for how you need to deliver this pitch. And so once you figure that out, if that is part of your hook, if that ends up being in the hook, then yes, you should. If it ends up not being in your hook, then no. So again, my answer hinges on that. Okay, thanks. Okay, let's go to the pages now. Will you give us an overview of what's in them? Okay, so we start with a date stamp, July 2019, over a very short prologue scene. The narrator is on the beach with another character named Mark, and they kiss. Claire is thinking that she shouldn't be doing this, but she does it anyway. And then we go into chapter one, which has the date stamp, February 2019. It's Claire's 35th birthday, and she's imagining what her perfect birthday would be and thinking how she isn't having that perfect birthday or her perfect life. In the scene, she's just getting home from work, and she sits down to play the flute, which makes her feel a lot better. But then her husband, Paul, comes into the apartment, and that interrupts her playing. He's picked up a pizza for dinner, and they get into an argument about the topping he chose for the pizza and the fact that it's her birthday. And in the middle of the argument is where the five pages ends. Great, Erica. Thank you. Okay, Cece, let's talk about that prologue, and let's talk about if we think we're starting in the right place. I will be very direct. I don't think we need the prologue at all. The purpose of a prologue is to generate curiosity because that's the purpose of everything in storytelling. And right now it's not generating curiosity in me. It's very well written, so polished. Like you clearly took a lot of time and you put in a lot of work into this and I really appreciate it. But I mean, do we want to keep the reader curious? I think we do. And as it stands, it's just giving us, just giving away the goods, you know, like she's there, she's kissing him, it's happening. And I don't think that it's serving the juiciness of your story. But of course, it's it's just one person's opinion. If you want to keep a prologue because you're like, I really wanted to start with them, with their chemistry, 
Although I will say that if you really want that, it makes me think that the story is about them. It makes me think that the story is about Claire and Mark. And you're telling me it's not. You're telling me it's about Claire and Paul. So another thing. But whatever. If you do want to keep it, if you want to keep that, then I think you need misdirection. I think you need to make us think that he is actually her husband. And then in the end of the prologue, surprise us with the fact that he's not. Because that misdirection would go, oh, whoa. You know, but from the beginning, you're already kind of giving away the goods, being like, I shouldn't be doing this. She kisses him. So that's my two cents on the prologue. When it comes to the actual pages, I have a few notes for you. So one, I want to talk about her emotional state and how we can leverage that, still be true to that, but also leverage curiosity. I don't know if this is intentional, Erica, and I'm so glad you're here because you can tell me. But right now, we have a very depressed character. Like we have someone who is saying, in my perfect life, these things are happening, but this is not my perfect life. And he walks in with a pizza box and she goes, oh, there's no point in fighting because marriage is an exercise in lowering your expectations. You know, this is what it is. What it is. I'm going to have to do this. Even in her great desire, which is motherhood, right? Because she really wants to be a mom. When she actually thinks about motherhood, she's thinking about how she'll never have a birthday to herself again. And not in an excited, I so want this kind of way, but rather in a she'll kind of die sort of way. You know, I feel like she's grieving and I'm always like, don't start with grief. Grief is not an active emotion. It's super passive because the character has given up when they're feeling grief. That's the thing about grief. It removes all, all life out of us. And I don't know. I'm like, why, like, why are we starting with this person grieving all the things? I want her to be feeling some type of story forward desire so that the grief isn't the only thing she's, she's feeling. So that's one of my notes for you. And I, and I hope we can talk about it. Then my second note is there's a lack of specificity in her interiority. We have lots of references that I feel like if you were to sharpen, you could keep this whole structure and you wouldn't have to change the structure at all. Just again, make them into specific, sharp specifics. So for example, stable childhood, graduated from a good college, went to graduate school, moved to Manhattan, embarked on a useful and rewarding career. And that's the first paragraph. And then you mention her, let's just give an example, her career again but I still don't know what she does. And so she's thinking in generics, right? Instead of thinking in with specificity. And I don't, I don't think that's how we think. I think we think in specifics. Paul's tone. Do you want us to dislike Paul? Because I'm thinking yes. And if so, great. But it still needs to be more specific. So for example, he's talking to her, right? And he asks, what's wrong with pizza? I'm asking this with love. Is he an idiot? Like, does he not know that it's wrong to bring a pizza box into someone's birthday? Because... What's wrong with pizza is a dumb question. Like, he knows what's wrong with pizza. Like, it's her birthday, you know? And I know he mentions a celebration up on the weekend and all that good stuff. But maybe maybe you could write something like, there, there he goes again, pretending like he doesn't understand, wanting to bait me into an argument. Bam, that would fix it for me. Because then he's not an idiot. He's actually just someone who is avoiding confrontation. I get, his, I get the psychology behind his comment. Or if it's not that, then something else. But whenever he was talking to her, there was absolutely no interiority on the socio-emotional framework of their marriage and, and nothing on his tone either. So I couldn't, like, I couldn't know. Like, I stopped for pizza on the way back to the gym. Like, is this normal? You know, like, and I get that it is normal in the sense of, like, marriage is about lowering her expectations. But, but what, why does she think he's doing this? Again, is it to bait her into an argument? Is it because Paul's the kind of guy who will give 100% when he starts on something? but then he gives up his projects and she feels like just another one of his projects. I don't know. It could be so many things. And again, we can brainstorm his psychology if you want to spend time doing that. And then as a final note, back on the contradiction about motherhood, 
Because that to me was very interesting. We have someone who really, really, really wants to be a mom who's dreaming about her perfect, perfect 35th birthday where it's going to be sunny and they're going to try for a baby. And that is beautiful. That is a beautiful thing. And then we have her thinking about how all her future birthdays are going to be sad because she's going to be a mom and a being a mom in her head means she'll never get to have a life of her own again. If that contradiction is intentional, let me start off by saying, great. Contradiction is interesting and messy and, and just intriguing. But in order for it to work, we also need to see her desire an aspect of motherhood. Let's see her go, let's see her mind go to the future and think about something wonderful about motherhood. And then also this sad thing, which is the death of her own identity. Um, of course, all of this from her point of view, so that we see the contradiction. And it's not just her grieving and her feeling, quite frankly, depressed. Um, I really want to know if this is intentional. I'm so curious to know if you're like, yep, Cece, I did want the character to be grieving in the beginning. Or no, I didn't. And then maybe we can figure out a way to to address that. Yeah, I'll stop talking. Erica? Uh, yeah, Claire is a little bit depressed. I would almost say she's she's disappointed and angry perpetually. And I'm not sure, that's, it's kind of depression. It has a similar, like she's always negative. She feels she's unhappy with life. She's kind of given up on perfect life that she wants. I think I maybe need to sharpen her disappointment so it's more anger and less depression because the way she comes out of it is more like an anger response. In terms of grieving, I had never thought of it that way. So this is really helpful, but she, she is grieving her lost youth. And that's what Mark represents to her is this youth that she has lost. Of course, everybody loses because you get older. And that's really what the story is about, is her grief for her lost youth. Um, except that's not the, the actions, obviously. Can I just point out that, and we've had a listener reach out and say, grief isn't an emotion, it's a process. We've been talked through this. Thank you, listener. But something I want to point out is resentment towards this man for the lost youth is much more active. When you are actively resentful towards somebody and you're like, it's your fault, my life is the way it is now, that's much more interesting and gives the character much more agency as opposed to just sort of depression, which I think is a bit more passive. Cece? I agree with that. I think that's really interesting what the listener said about grief not being an emotion. I'm going to have to sit with that for, because it's true on, on its surface, but I, I also think that there's a package deal that comes with grief like a set of emotions that people typically associate with which is emotions that of like yeah, not feeling the, anything of feeling numb that's what i mean when i mean grief is not grief is passive yeah they they gave a whole breakdown about how grief is a series of emotions it's a process that you work through so when we refer to grief we should refer to it as a process rather than just an and they're emotion. right i should say numbness like say i should say the series. numbness that comes with grief that often comes with grief. And they're right. And I appreciate that. I also wanted to add that there were really beautiful lines. Things like the music's beauty extinguished like a box slamming shut. And I highlighted all those for you. And I didn't spend any time being like, your writing is beautiful. Because you'll get those in my written notes. And I really want to make use of our time to see how we can make this even better. But I do want you to know that I really appreciated that. And I highlighted a whole, and there's a whole bunch of compliments waiting for you when you get these pages. Thank you, Cece. Yeah, I also wanted to say that, Erica, the writing was really, really good at the line level. So kudos to you for that. Okay, Carly? All right. That was actually what I was going to start with because I liked the writing in the prologue and sometimes sneaky, I call them sneaky prologue. Sometimes a sneaky prologue can work for me when I'm just like swept away with the writing. And I, 
I think that you are very, very talented, which is why Cece and I are like poking holes at all of these things. Cause we're like, we don't need to talk about the writing. You got that locked down, right? Like we need to figure out, we need to figure out the rest. And what Cece and I try to do on the show is figure out how to get you an agent, how to get you published. Like this is what we're obviously focusing on. So I think you have the writing locked down here. So let's just figure out these pages. So I was, I've been, I was thinking a lot while Cece was talking um, because it's not like my notes were contradictory or anything like that, but I'm just glad Cece went first because she offered such incredible feedback. So I think the first paragraph of chapter one has to go, which is the checklist, the things in my life, you know, I, I just worry it was just, there was nothing unexpected there. You know, the like, I made friends and earned promotions. I managed my weight. I met a suitable partner. Like it is just super heteronormative, super just like these are my middle class goals or like, you know, at least even like social climbing goals. You know what I'm trying to say? Like there was absolutely nothing unexpected about that. And but I would start with the, in my perfect life, the weather would be sunny on my 35th birthday period. I think that's a really good opening. If you're keeping this as your opener, I think that's a really strong opening line because even though you're talking about the weather, it's like, it, it, but it's not sunny. Do you know what I'm trying to say? So like, there is a little bit of subversion there. So I think that is the place to start. I liked the little voiciness of like the paragraph where it says afterward, Paul would ask me as he had af- every time we had sex for the past two years, if this might be the time in my perfect life, my last period. And she kind of gets into that. And then, but you had this little, this little bit, which was like, I would not ignore Paul's question or shrug or turn away. I would smile all sincere, all sincerity and say, I hope it is like, there was a, such like earnestness to her, to her yearning, which I think was really palatable um, and just really interesting. But the repetition of perfect life, because even in after your little, your little asterisk, you have a break here after I hope it is. And then you get into this was not my perfect life. So it's just like the repetition of like this idea of perfection. I just I mean, I hate using this word. It is a little bit boring, right? Because it's just like, OK, we all have this idea of perfect of what a perfect life is. But we we're turning to fiction, I think, to subvert these ideas. And so this is why this is like the hammering of the perfect life stuff. I don't think this is about a perfect life. I think this I think that's a little bit of scaffolding you've been holding onto as a structure for these opening pages. And I think a lot of this has to go in that capacity. The parts that I loved in these opening pages was this little back and forth of like pizza. I stopped on my back from the gym and I was like, why did he go to the gym? It's her birthday. Like get home earlier. Like what are you even doing? Going to the gym. Like again, resentment. I'm like, what, how would I feel if you know, my partner went to the gym on my birthday? Um, like, are you training for a marathon and it's on Saturday? Like <laughs> you are not going to the gym on my birthday you know what I mean like what what is it about these expectations or she is so numb that like she has such little expectation of him and the other thing I'm really needling on here is this fact that they've only been married for five years maybe they've been together for 20 years I don't know right maybe they've been you know together since they were kids but how does a marriage go south in five years so bad (laughs) I don't know like I have a really hard time wrapping my head around that unless like Again, what is this repetition of events is the fact that they just obviously can't have a child. Like, I I can imagine how that would feel. I mean, I can't put myself in that shoes, but like, yeah, I mean, maybe that that's, that's it. That's how it goes so south in five years. That's the part that I was kind of trying to figure out is like, how are her expectations of him so low? And yet she still wants to engage. She still wants to do like, you got onions. What's wrong with onions? They don't taste like anything. Do you know what I mean? Like she wants to fight for this marriage and he doesn't. And that's fucking annoying. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like that's the part that pisses me off about this, this interaction in a good way, right? I'm getting fired up because I'm interested in, in the outcome here. This is what I think is interesting. So that's kind of what I'm focusing on is 
what can we elevate here to get across what the hook of this project is? And so this is why I think you're scaffolding on this perfect life and it is not what we should be scaffolding on at all. I think there's just so much nuance and so much here that is just super interesting that I can't get at the meat of it, obviously, in five pages, but I just, I really love what Cece had said, and I'm just so curious to get into the dialogue with you. Thanks, Carly. Before we move across to Erica, two things. Once, I know a couple who dated for 20 years, then got married, and the marriage lasted four months. So, yeah, so this shit happens. Uh, And two, you know, I really love surprise and contradiction in opening chapters. Like, if, for example, we hear a character really wants to have a baby, She's desperate to be a mother, and at the end of the chapter, we see her taking her birth control pill. Then we're like, holy shit, how do these two things go together? Oh, she really wants to be a mother, but maybe she doesn't want to have the baby with this dude. Okay, then we've we've got to do the math there because it's a contradiction. So that's why I like what Cece said earlier about if we have it in the prologue thinking that she is with her husband in the future and somehow they've managed to make things work, and then we find out in chapter one it's not her husband, that's contradiction and surprise, which I really like. Okay, Erica, we're handing it across to you now. Okay, thank you guys. This is this is all really great feedback. I've noticed that people who read these pages seem to have one of two responses, which are either Claire is horrible or Paul is horrible. My conclusion is that they are both horrible, which I kind of like because they're two horrible people who are married to each other, and, and that's kind of realistic, I think. But I guess I am struggling because I guess I need to find the right amount of interiority because I don't want Claire to be every time Paul says something giving like us, you know, giving us the background of, you know, she's she's this is her first person monologue. So she could tell us everything that's ever happened in their relationship and the whole history of everything on page one, which I think would be extremely boring. So I guess I need to find some very pithy ways to get her to give us enough insight without explaining everything that's ever happened on page one, because I know that that's that's not what we want. Carly, you're definitely right that the perfect, perfect, perfect is a scaffolding that has gotten actually less strong in revisions. And I think part of why it stayed is that it it is, maybe I'm, I'm banging on my theme again, where it's Claire really having grown up with this idea of the perfect life that she wanted and having worked very hard for this perfect life and gotten this perfect life that turned out to not be very perfect. But I, I guess I need to find a way to to either be more specific in my vision of perfection or else to sort of make it less prominent. Is that right? I think to me, I think you, I think you're right, right? Like as you, I think that was the seed of the idea and then it kind of has grown in all of these different ways. And again, you need to let the story speak to you. It's speaking to you in this direction. It's speaking away from that like perfectionism kind of idea. So I would really just let that go because it's generic It's not that it was wrong to start that way in that place. The story has evolved beyond the seed of that plot. And I think it's smart to let that go. And I think you're doing a really good job of listening to the story and where it's telling you to go. And I would definitely let that go. Cece, I knew you were not going to like my prologue because you don't like prologues. But I wanted to figure out how much you disliked it, but also sort of, so the purpose that in my mind it's serving, because I've gone back and forth on, do I need this prologue? Is it helping me? Is that I wanted to, I feel like half the time, especially in the first half of this book, it's just the opposite of a romance novel. And people who read it keep trying to make it be a romance novel. And I keep trying to prove to them that it's not a romance novel. I was showing Claire and Mark together because I know that the expectation in a romance novel is that they will get together. And I wanted to deflate that expectation. And make the idea of them getting together not be the, not be a, I didn't want it to be a will they or won't they, because now we know they will. 
And I wanted, I want the novel to be more about the question of how will they, and what will happen afterwards, and what will the repercussions of that be? And I don't know if it doesn't seem like I've accomplished that, but would you just not have Mark appear until I, I mean, he's, he, he has mentioned later in the first chapter when the younger brother calls and the scene that's mentioned in the query letter happens in chapter one. So is that the place to introduce Mark then? I want to go back to what you said about me not liking prologues. I had someone, a very intelligent person, go on my website, get the list of books that I loved and be like, all of these had prologues, Susie. So clearly I love prologues. Clearly, I'm like down for prologues. They had so many examples. The Whispers, The Push, um, The Ballerinas. Like, I don't remember them all now, but I do love prologues. They have to be curiosity-inducing or else I don't like them. And that is at the heart of what I'm telling you now. You, you are starting the prologue giving away the goods. You are starting the prologue giving away the answer. And based on everything you're telling me here, that might be intentional. Maybe the kind of book you want to write is... A book where there's no real mystery. It's more about the how. It's more about the how they live there. Then the thing that the problem that we're bumping into from my very subjective one person perspective is if I already know the what, it's very, very hard for me to stay invested because there's so many distractions in the modern world. And I think that's very true of readers. I think there's a reason why. So many beautiful interior meditative books still have that curiosity-inducing element. So I want to make sure that I'm really, really focusing on that. Because to me, if I had to give you one note, like Carly's one note is focus on the hook. My one note is focus on story-forward curiosity. But to answer your specific question about Mark, he can show up later. That's not a problem at all. Or he can show up early. Both versions work as long as it's framed. And I'm going to say it again with story forward curiosity. There's no one way to do it. And remember, Erica, you will be getting the written notes, which I think will be helpful as well. And for our subscribers, you will have access to those written notes as well. Right, Erica, thank you so much for joining us. Now let's go to today's guest. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. 
But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Today's guest is the New York Times best-selling, award-winning author of four going on five novels. Her writing has also appeared in the New York Times, The Guardian, Publishers Weekly, People Magazine, Lit Up, and the Sydney Morning Herald and other publications. She's the recipient of the Washington State Book Award and the Endeavor Award. Her novels have been translated into more than 25 languages and have been optioned for film and TV. A former college professor, she now writes full-time in Seattle, Washington, where she lives with her family and makes good soup. It's my pleasure to welcome Laurie Frankel. Laurie, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I am thrilled to be doing this this morning. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you because I have a confession. Normally, I avoid hyped up books or hyped up authors. Books that get chosen for the big book clubs generally make me very nervous because I normally find that the hype was not earned, that it's the result of a huge marketing machine, and then I tend to be disappointed. So all I can think is, I missed your books for that reason or else I was under a rock and I do not live under a rock when it comes to literary things. So when I read Family Family, oh my God, I loved it so much that I could then understand all the hype and I was like, oh my God, I now get to go back and check out your entire backlist, which feels like Christmas came all over again. So just thank you for the gift of this book and thank you for the gift of your backlist. <laughs> Our backlists are the best. It is the best thing when you discover a writer who's new to you, but turns out not to be new and you and you have this whole backlist. It's, I mean, it's the best thing. And thank you for that, by the way. I am thrilled that you loved it and also like really relieved that, you know, that you found it. <laughs> no, geez, it, it was incredible. So, so before we dive into discussing the book, do you have an author that you had the same thing with where you were like, oh, I'm not going to read their work. It's probably overhyped or whatever. And then you finally picked up the book and, and you loved it. Is there any author like that for you? Yes, I feel like this happens to me all the time, but, and not for dissimilar reasons, because I think, you know, so often the hype is not necessarily due to the... How is the nice way to say this? I think the quality of the book or like the book suitability to me. And so then, you know, who knows how you actually find the book, but but then there are all of these books that are backlist and I love it. I did just read Helen DeWitt that has a little, a little book out called The English Understand Wool, which I read and I loved. And it's, I mean, it's, it's a novella, but it's practically a short story. It's so short, but it sent me back to The Last Samurai, which I just finished yesterday and had never read. And that book is 30 years old now, maybe not quite 25 years old, something like that. And it just, 
like it hadn't been on my radar. I'd never found it. And I mean, what a treat to have, because it's 700 pages long, you know, all of this huge, huge book that was just sitting there waiting for me this whole time. It was really remarkable. Yeah, it does feel like a gift. I think the last time this happened to me was Miriam Taves. I read, I think, All My Puny Sorrows. And then I was like, oh my word. And I went back and checked out her backlist, which I absolutely adored. So yeah, so for our listeners... You know, it is such a gift when that happens. And I will be diving into Laurie's backlist with great enthusiasm as soon as I get through the books I have to read for the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for that. Yeah, Laurie. So, okay. So we're discussing the book that we're discussing today is Family, Family, right? So I think the emphasis is on family, family, right? So I'm going to read you the flap copy just so that you know what we're talking about. So not all adoption stories are filled with pain and regret. Why don't we ever see those stories? India Allwood grew up wanting to be an actress. Armed with a hell of a lot of talent, she goes from awkward 16-year-old to Broadway ingenue to TV star. But while promoting her most recent project, a film about adoption, India does what you should never do. She tells a journalist the truth. It's a bad movie. Like so many movies about adoption, it tells only one story, a tragic one. India has two adoptive children and knows there's so much more to her own family than tragedy. Soon she's at the center of a media storm, battling accusations from the press and the paparazzi from protesters on the right and advocates on the left. Her daughter Fig knows they need help and who better to call for help than family because India's not just an adoptive mom. Laurie Frankel has written a novel about contemporary families because no matter how they are formed, they're always complicated. Right, so Laurie, firstly, I love your character names. This is something that many authors struggle with is naming characters in a way that lives up to the largeness of who these characters are. And these are larger than life characters. So can you tell us a bit just about how you finally got these names? Yes, gosh, I would love to. It is one of my peeves as a reader when I cannot keep track of characters in books. And I'm a good reader. I'm a close, careful, slow reader, an immersed reader. And yet, still, often I can't keep track of who is who. And I realize over the course of reading, you know, 10,000 or so novels, that it's not because these names like rhyme or actually sound alike. It's just that they live in the same part of my brain. It's like short, normal boys' names. So, you know, Todd, Brad, Josh, Doug, Dave, these names are all like the same name in my brain. And so I sit down at the beginning of the drafting process and think of names that are really different from one another so that you can keep the characters straight. Because I know, I don't know a lot going in and almost everything changes If I could make an outline, I would, but I can't. But what I do plan, the really the only thing I plan is those names. So it's a funny question. It's a good question to lead off with because it drives me crazy when I can't keep track of characters. And because I am so often writing these books with like sprawling cast. And I'm gonna leave this person and come back to them 150 pages later. And I I don't want you to have to work too hard to say, like, who the heck was that person and what are they doing in this book? So I try to make sure that the names are varied so that they stick into your brain yeah because we have a jack so that's equivalent of like a doug and a stew and a whatever but it's fine that we have a jack because then we have india and we have fig etc so that really balances out and naming characters so important to me it's like naming children you know so you really really need to get that right 
It is. It is like naming children with the added bonus that it is free character development. Like it tells you so much about a character, what they name their kid and why. And so it works for both the reader and and it gives you the second thing for free, which is telling you about the character and, and you know, and who they are that they have chosen the name that they have. It also, I think, gives me an opportunity to give you a little bit of story surrounding why it is that they have got the name that they do. And I think that that's always interesting. I mean, I think most people choose a name for a reason other than, oh, well, I just liked it. There's often a reason that goes with it. And that reason is really, really good. Tells you a lot about a person. It's really good character development. Yeah. And it's kind of a shortcut in storytelling because by the time you name a character, you know that character. So the name can either be really consistent with who they are or be the complete opposite, which you're doing on purpose. Whereas when you're looking at this baby, you have no idea who the hell they're going to grow up to be. So you name them and you're hoping for the best, right? Right. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so moving on from there, I know that there was a reason why this was a book you wanted to write. And we say to our listeners that writing a book can take a long time. Some people take 10 years, some people it's just a year. But regardless, to put bum in chair and keep returning to the blank page every day, it needs to be something you're passionate about and that you care about. And I generally say, have it be something that you'll wave a turkey drumstick around at Thanksgiving dinner at family members. Those are the things that get you rankled and that you want to say into the world. So can you tell us a bit about the the, the inspiration for this novel? Yes, and I agree completely. For me, it's the stuff that I'm ranting about to myself in the shower uh, or while I walk the dog. Those those things that I'm that I'm yelling about about to only myself because I'm the only one there, or sometimes to the dog um, who's used to listening to this sort of thing. Those are the things that turn into novels. In this case, I, I mean, it's, this is my fifth novel. Um, in many ways, this is what I'm always on about, which is wider ranges of normal make the world a better place for everyone and non-traditional families um, is something that I'm also always writing about in this case it is very much inspired um, by my um, dissatisfaction with so many of the adoption narratives I encounter in the world which all start from this place of tragedy, that the adoption is occasioned by tragedy, um, that it's terrible for the birth parents, although usually just the mother, because we talk very little about birth fathers, um, and that it is tragic for the birth parents who, of course, wanted to have their own children, which I put in the scariest scare quotes I possibly can, but settled for these instead, and is, of course, terrible for this child who is getting stuck with these crap parents, and usually, you know, often before their life has even gotten started. And I find that narrative to be first of all, untrue, but also really doing a disservice to everyone involved. Um, I have an adopted kid myself, and it was not until I did that I started noticing the ubiquity of these narratives and also the kind of relentless negativity of these narratives. And I find that that's true, whether that's the topic, like this is a book about adoption, or often it's just thrown off as a plot point. It's thrown off as a bit of like lazy character development. Um, and we're not even asked to examine it. It's, you know, it is offered to us as, you know, as just a thing that of course we know to be true. And so I can just throw it out there as, as character development unexamined and, and assume that the reader will get it. And all 
all of that, it's the kind of thing that I'm ranting to myself while I'm walking the dog. Um, and so then I realized I got to, I had to figure out how to write about it. Yeah. And that, that's so important because when we're writing a book, we're entertaining, we're keeping the reader turning pages, but we also write to figure out how we feel about the world, to express what we feel about the world, the things that we're passionate about. And so that infuses whatever the entertaining story is with the life. It breathes the life into it. And that was so clear on all of the pages here. Every time somebody said, oh, so-and-so gave up for adoption and India says, placed, placed for adoption, not given up. I was absolutely loving the way she was constantly correcting these perceptions and how matter of fact she was in her approach to it, which made sense. It wasn't like she was going out trying to stand on a soapbox and preach to everybody. She just, she had this opinion that was a very quiet opinion, actually, but it really came through on, on every single page. So how do you write a book that is full of these nuggets of wisdom that the reader keeps wanting to highlight, right? Because I imagine, Laurie Witten, your books are finished. You know, Kindle has an option where people can highlight certain paragraphs or sentences. And sometimes if you're reading that, you'll see like 12,000 people have highlighted one particular sentence because they loved it so much and because it resonates it so much. So how do you write a book that has all those nuggets of wisdom but doesn't feel preachy and doesn't feel trite? Editing. <laughs> and it, it's, a, it's a really simple answer. Um, <laughs> editing. I mean, this book took me three and a half years and I cut 300,000 words from it. And certainly wow. not in a chunk. It's not like it was ever this really long book and I lopped off the second half of it. They were really being cut, you know, a sentence, a paragraph at a time. I don't know how else to do it other than to write what turned out to be really crap rough drafts get it from the beginning to the end and then at least just on the page and it's terrible and then I go back to the beginning and edit to the end and I go back to the beginning and edit to the end and I do that three or four hundred times and and eventually it's it's, it's it's in that sweet spot because yeah i i want you to be having fun i want you to be entertained i want you to be turning pages you know i don't want it to be a slog i don't want you to feel lectured at i don't you know i don't even i mean it's not nonfiction. you know i don't i don't want you to be enjoying yourself but really like learning something and it's really good for you i want all of that to happen but but it's secondary to the story first you have to have good characters in interesting relationships doing interesting things so and it's hard it's hard to, to combine those things, especially in this case, because as to your previous question, I didn't want to write a tragedy about adoption, but nor did I want to write this like tragedy narrowly averted or, you know, it was really hard, but eventually they learned to love each other. Nor did I want to gloss over all of the many extremely important and often fraught and difficult issues involved. I want to talk about all of those things. So it had to be couched in some other kind of plot. And it took me a long time to find it. And and you said earlier that you don't outline, which I want to come back to. Yeah. So when you do your rewrite, so for me, I do what they say you should not do in that I will write, let's say, five chapters, and then I'll come back and edit from the beginning before I've moved past, you know, the Stephen Kings of the world tell you, write the whole damn thing in one draft, and then you can come back. But for me, I always say the beginning is like circling the entrance to a building. You've got to find your way into the building. And sometimes it's the back door. Sometimes it's the chimney. Sometimes it's on the second floor. But 
for me, the book hasn't really taken off until I found the entry point into the story. And when I have, then I feel like the foundation's solid and then I can move on and then I'll come back and edit multiple times. So is yours a draft, start to finish, then come back and revise? Or do you do a kind of hodgepodge approach like mine? I think it's closer to the former. I write from the beginning to the end, more or less, not because I don't agree with you. I do agree with you, but I don't know what's going to happen in this book for the first long while, which is also why I can't outline it because I don't know the answer to these questions. To me, it feels like I don't know what these characters are going to do until I meet them. But like, of course, you can't meet them until you write them and you can't write them without giving them something to do. So that in early drafts, I've just guessed and I am usually wrong. And then eventually I find the plot and I find the ending and then I have to go back and make the beginning go with go with that ending. And then I have to go through and get rid of all of the stuff that turned out to be extraneous. It didn't work with the ending that I finally found. It is also true in this case that I started this book on March 3rd, 2020. And it has two timelines, one of which is past, but one of which is present. And and very quickly in this drafting process, our present changed completely and over and over and over again. And so that present, it is unlike me to do this, but eventually I took that present timeline and dragged the whole thing to the trash can and started from scratch because it, it no longer applied, essentially. I would have had falsely said it, you know, in 2018 or something. And I couldn't figure out how to do that without leaving them with this huge thing hanging over their heads. Like they think it's a happy ending, but you know what's coming. And I think that, you know, it presented a lot of practical problems as far as I couldn't have characters, you know, meet in the school parking lot because schools were closed. I couldn't have them go to dinner together because restaurants were closed. Those those kind of practical things. But I also think the world changed. Our sensibilities changed. I, I think a novel is a really forward-looking thing for exactly the reason you say. It's going to take years and so many hours of butt plus chair. And, and that is essentially... Now, a leap of faith that somebody's going to be reading on the other end. And it's not like I thought there weren't going to be readers and the world was going to end, but it certainly was going to look a lot different than I had imagined in the planning stages. And it, and it didn't seem possible to me to write it without considering that at more or less every page. Yeah, and I find people who don't outline are much more able to pivot and roll with the punches. I don't outline at all. I'm like, I write to find out what's going to happen. And if I know what's going to happen, I have zero interest to sit <laughs> down with the story with these characters. I'm like, oh, I figured that out. Who needs to write the book? <laughs> but I know a lot of authors were like, no, I have to have the outline. If I don't have the outline, I, it's the scaffolding. I can't write. But then when they hit something that they didn't think about, I think it's much harder to pivot because they have it firmly in their mind. This is how it was meant to be. And it makes it harder. Right. Interesting. Yes. I mean, and I also find that it's the indication to me, it's the first hint I have that it's working is when the car when I start to be surprised, as I do when I'm reading, where you, you know, you're reading along, and you turn the page and you think like, oh my gosh, I did not see that coming. That will eventually happen to me when I'm writing. Certainly not if I've outlined it and certainly not at the beginning. And that's how I know, oh, okay, this thing is working because it's you know, because these characters have taken on some kind of a life of their own. They're making decisions that feel like they didn't come out of my fingers. 
Yeah, well, I'm all for all the non-outliners out there. But I know that some of our listeners are going to be like, Bianca, you know, we have agents on the show, Laurie, my two co-hosts. We run a Books with Hooks segment in which people submit their query letters and opening pages to us and we help them polish it up to send out to agents. And something that the CC and Carly say is try not to write about the pandemic. People are not ready to read about the pandemic yet. So some of our listeners are going, but Bianca, you tell us not to write about the pandemic and Laurie's done it. But guys, here's the thing. This is Laurie freaking Frankel, right? <laughs> so this is not a debut author who is submitting their COVID novel. This is, you know, somebody who's got an audience who is loyal, who when they see one of her books coming out, they are going to pick it up. So please don't you all run and start, you know, being like, ah, oh, we're going to write about COVID you know just ask yourself how important is it to the story how integral is it how much of a downer is it going to be and in Laurie's book it is not a downer at all it is it is something we know is coming for the characters it's like there's this tension built in because we as the readers know something that the characters don't know and we're like oh man you're making plans and are these plans going to fall to shit right Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. And gosh, I'm thrilled that you felt so, <laughs> you know, and, and yes to all of that. I, I hasten to say that it is not a book about COVID at all. It, it is simply a book that takes place during, it, it begins before and ends after, and therefore had to include it. And it is very, it's not that I disagree with these agents. And it's not that I, you know, I'm super eager to read 50,000 novels about COVID necessarily. But I do think, again, on a very practical level, these are things that we all as a writing community have to figure out that your choices are really pretty limited. And in really super interesting ways, I think, you know, going forward, if you're just doing contemporary novels, then okay. But it's a pretty formative part of everyone's past at this at this point. We are all of us living in this aftermath. We are all of us, you know, we, I mean, lots of people are sick. Lots of people experience tremendous loss. Lots of people are trying to raise children who missed a year and a half of school. I, there's, you know, this is going to impact everyone and pretending that it doesn't seems to me to be an interesting choice, but definitely a choice. As, you know, as is saying like, okay, I, I'm going to write a historical novel by setting it in 2019. <laughs> um, seems sort of ridiculous to me also. It's, it is a very interesting problem. I look forward to how a whole generation of us are going to solve it over and over and over again. And so for me, it was very much about not making the book about that, but also not pretending that it didn't happen, which I do not think is always the right answer, but was the right answer for this particular book. Yeah, I think this is being driven by editors at publishing houses, you know, because these agents are speaking from experience whereby they're pitching books in which, you know, COVID is there. It's either about COVID or COVID's kind of in the background and editors are like, ah, oh, people want escapism at the moment. People don't want to read about something that they've just lived through, et cetera, et cetera. So publishing, get your shit together and let's start <laughs> publishing some books that have got COVID in it. And luckily we've got somebody like Laurie who's charging <laughs> forward and paving the way for the rest of us. So yeah, hopefully, hopefully we'll start seeing more of that. So Laurie, something that I want to pick your brain about as well is, so we mentioned on the podcast recently how there are certain books that are written in the third person that actually 
it's third person close that bring you even closer than first person. And we had some listeners go, can you give us examples? For those of you who asked, Family Family is the book that does this. It is insane how close Laurie brings us to these characters in the third person much closer than I've seen done with many, many first-person novels. So firstly, Laurie, can you speak to us about the intentionality of choosing third-person close? Because every choice when you approach a book needs to be intentional. And then your advice to our listeners for how to do that. Yes. First of all, I'm thrilled you noticed. (laughs) I'm thrilled you noticed. And this might get a little wonky, but let's see what we can do. I mean, short answer, yes. I. It's one of the things that I love most about a close third person is I think it's actually closer than first person. And I feel like it's a little bit sneakily closer than first person. I think that when you are reading first person, you are automatically thinking that you are very close. I think that you, I think that nowadays we are all, we are at once thinking, oh, I don't know if this reader is reliable. I think that that distrust of the first person narrative is built in a little bit. Maybe that's just me. <laughs> but I, I, I feel like, I don't know, I, we a little bit jaded as readers. I think that that I is so prominent that I start to think, well, okay, says you. That's what you're telling me. And whereas a close third person hides that because that I is not signaling to you. It's not it's not blinking in neon. It's not signaling to you like, hey, you are getting a very, very biased perspective here. This character is only telling you what they either think or want you to know. Both of which might be total bullshit. Can I say bullshit? Sorry, super. Okay. Uh, um, the podcast is called The Ship No One Tells You About Writing. It's in the name, people. Yes, that's right. So, okay. <laughs> I totally forgot about that. Yes, awesome. Okay, yes. I talk Kurt's way with abandon. Um <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> That's really funny. <laughs> and so I like that close third because I think it it reads on the surface like it might be, you know, Tolstoy. Like it's this very omniscient floating above. Obviously, you are being, you, we're being totally honest with you. But of course, of course they're not because it is essentially a first person narration. You, you are essentially in the the voice and perspective of the character you just don't notice as much in this case it switches between all of the characters which seems really important because to me because the characters are really different and I wanted them to be able to speak for themselves it's really important that none of them are speaking for one another because because their perspectives are really what the book is about and their differing perspectives and the ways in which their different backgrounds and identities and privileges and positions and all of those things make them sound like really different people with really different opinions who navigate the world really differently. That's the point. So I wanted you to be able to hear all of that, but I wanted you to kind of notice along the way rather than from page one. Like I wanted to sneak it in there. I mean, I also think it's, I like it as a reader when I notice that what seems to me to be this neutral third person is actually full of voice. I like voice as far as, I think it's really good character development. 
The voice was incredible and you did sneak it in because I was quite a way in. When I start wanting to climb into a book and I'm like, oh, these people are my best friends. I love these people so much. I want to just go live with these people and talk to these people. And and then I go, wait, how is the author doing this? And I did think uh, it was like first person because of the voiciness, because we tend to associate voicey with first person. And then I was like, oh, no, she's doing this in third person. And it was also so smart, because how old is Fig? Fig is 10. Right. So if you tried to do her in the first person, that would have been really challenging in terms of her accessibility to language, etc. Right. So so you overcame that challenge with the third person clothes. Yeah, I think it's a little bit control freaky on my part, maybe. It allows me to do all of the voice without having to give myself over 100% to to the 10-year-old in her. And it's that pivoting that you're talking about before. It allows you to to go from one 10-year-old to another and from a child to an adult and from a daughter to a parent and from a child to a slightly older child. So the difference between a 10-year-old and a 16-year-old, but without it, but without signposting it so that you as a reader are, are feeling that difference rather than it's being told to you with like a chapter heading like now I am changing voice we are changing characters we're changing perspective everybody pay attention I want you instead to be thinking like no I'm just reading this book I'm just going along and suddenly somehow find yourself immersed and viewing the world through different eyes yeah it is an incredible book so for our listeners we're linking to it on our bookshop.org affiliate page get it there support laurie support an independent bookstore support us at the same time laurie you're going out on tour right so where can our listeners see that tour schedule Yes, that's a super question. It is on my website, which is lauriefrankel.net. It is on my Instagram, which is, I think it is laurie.frankel, and which is also linked from my website. It, actually, it should be listed everywhere. It will be on Facebook. It will be on Twitter, it, whatever we are calling Twitter these days. It will be all of the places. It's on, it will be on Holt's social media, Henry Holt's social media, my publisher, but probably the easiest place is lauriefrankel.net, which, which is my website. Amazing. So for our listeners, if you get the opportunity, go and see Lori. Please take pictures Please. and tag us. Tag us because I'm going to be living vicariously through you. I wish that I could attend one of these sessions. And Lori, thank you so, so much for your time. Thank you so, so much. This was a pleasure. You are an excellent podcaster and an excellent interviewer. This has been a delight. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10am to 5pm Eastern Time in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on.